Hello. Most days I go running and sometimes I go flat out to get a good time. On those days, even a slight hill or a small headwind feels like a big barrier to achieving my goals. But imagine if your whole life felt like that. Hill after hill. Sudden headwinds disrupting the calm. I thought about what that might be like after reading a new and intriguing book about a young black woman trying to make her way in modern Britain. To hear why it felt like that to her, stay tuned to this edition of Bridges to the Future. Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. I'm delighted to be joined by Otago Uwagba, who's author of a new book, We Need to Talk About Money. Hi, Otago, how are you? Hi, I'm very well, thank you. Now, I found the book really intriguing, partly, you know, because I'm just an old white bloke. And so it was kind of quite interesting to find out what it's like to be a young black woman and the, the issues and challenges that you face. But please don't take this as a criticism. But one of the things about the book is that you know, no one dies, no one falls in love, no one performs heroic deeds. Why did you think your story needed telling? It's funny you mentioned that because I definitely remember in my proposal saying to my editor, I was like, look, I haven't lived a particularly extraordinary life. You know, this isn't Drew Barrymore writing her memoir, especially at the age of, I was 28, 29 when I first started writing this. But I very much see it as an every woman account. And the responses I've had so far suggest that you don't need to have had something particularly sensational happen to you for your story to resonate with others. In fact, I think the fact that, you know, in many ways, my story has just been that, that something that many other women can relate to is why it's resonated. But, you know, to more specifically answer your question, my perspective isn't one that's often heard from. So that's a kind of, as you say, young black woman, immigrant background, growing up in the UK, how I've dealt with classism and racism and sexism and all those other isms, I do think that they have relevance beyond people who are, you know, occupying my specific identity. And and certainly, again, the response I've had have demonstrated that. But I thought it was really important to talk about something that I think everyone has feelings about, which is money. So that's, that's kind of why I wrote it. And one of the reasons it's interesting is that you're not a kind of classic case study of somebody who's struggled against the odds in the sense that you've got an incredibly supportive family, you are very uh, intelligent and gifted in many ways, you went to an independent school, which broadly speaking, you really enjoyed. You went to a great university, which broadly speaking, you really enjoyed. And and so I guess, am I right in taking that what, one of the things you're trying to do in the book is say, even somebody like you, even somebody who has many advantages, still faces this, which I just described as kind of running into the headwind of sexism and, and racism? In a way, yes. But I also, you know, you mentioned against the odds, the odds are very much stacked against people like me. You know, when I moved to this country, I was five years old. My parents didn't have any connections here. We lived in a one bedroom council flat. And so 
I have seen where I've ended up as not necessarily the path that's laid out for people like me. So I, I do want to be clear about that. But as you say, you know, in many ways, I did have many advantages, which I'm very grateful for, which, you know, educated parents who were supportive and, you know, had a lot of ambition for me. I did win this scholarship to this fancy school. I did end up going to Oxford. And, and so I have I have many privileges that people who are from backgrounds like mine don't generally end up having. And to an extent, the point I was making, it was less about even someone like me, but more to demonstrate how women in general, the kind of circumstances that they're up against within the workplace and within society. So money is at the heart of the book. And there's a kind of interesting kind of intertwining here of two things. One is quite a personal account that you have of your own relationship to money, your own anxieties about money, your tendency for most of your life until possibly quite recently to to feel that the absolute priority of money was just to kind of hoard as much as you could to make yourself secure. But there's also this broader story about how it feels not to, to have enough money, which I think is not just to do with race or gender, but also just to do with being young and being in London and the particular issues of getting somewhere to live. So the money story is partly about you, isn't it? And it's partly about the general experience of young people today. Mm, Definitely. I mean, one of the things that I really want to touch on in the book is the kind of structural factors that are facing many people. You know, I am technically the right age to be a member of Generation Rent, which is you know, the millennials of a certain age who, unless you inherit significant amounts of money from your family or you have a very, very, very well-paid job, you know, far beyond the average, homeowning isn't a realistic possibility for many people my age. And, you know, the fact that I've managed to make it happen, for me, I feel like I gained the system. It's, again, not something that is really a prescribed path for someone like me who, who didn't have, you know, financial help from my parents. I essentially managed to wing it in because I managed to earn an above average salary for a couple of years and and, and various other factors. But, you know, I've come of age and graduated and started working at a time where people my age are facing a sort of a perfect storm of economic factors that make our lives very hard. You know, I graduated post-financial crash into a recession. Wages aren't climbing at the same rate as home ownership you know lots of us are having to make a living on the crumbling bedrock of the gig economy you know things aren't rosy for many millennials and I did kind of see it as a a bit of venting that I thought that other people might relate to you know I I think it's fine to to complain and, and to kick back and say I'm really angry at the situation that I've been put in by successive governments essentially Another really interesting part of the story I thought, Otega, was, and I, I kind of related this slightly to the fact I've got a, I've got two sons and some of the conversations I've had with, with them, which is, in a way, there are more choices or there's more of a sense of choice that young people have than maybe a generation or two ago where people would choose a profession, choose a career, or simply be focused on just earning as much money as they could to achieve economic security. And also a greater concern amongst young people, I think, about well-being, about not wanting to have a, a life which is just about struggling and working all hours and, you know, wanting to have a more balanced life. And what's you know, in your story, I sensed 
on two or three occasions that you were kind of on the verge of leaping into something and then you would kind of pull back from it. So there are opportunities for you to fully throw yourself into the kind of social elite, you know, despite the fact that you would have to deal with with racism. But, you know, you you have the connections, the school, the university, you have a kind of a, a, for a while a best friend who's very much part of this elite. And then, but in the end, you don't really want to take up the invitation to join the social elite and all that's involved in it. Then similarly, you're developing a career in advertising and you, it's very talented. And yet there's something about the culture of the organizations you're in and what they're really about and the kind of purpose of advertising that means that, again, you you don't decide that you're going to throw yourself fully into the idea of climbing up the ladder to in, in the advertising world. And then even in relation to kind of celebrity culture again you know you're an influential figure in in social media you're well known you've written best-selling book but there's also a bit of you that's very much aware of the downside of that kind of side of things so i got this sense to take of that you've as your life has developed you've you've kind of had these moments when you could have gone all in mm. and yet you've not wanted to I think that's a really astute observation, actually. And no one has, in all the sort of interviews I've done about that book, no one's picked that up. So I really appreciate that. The reality is I don't feel entirely comfortable in those spaces. I can navigate them. I have the tools and the knowledge and the understanding to navigate them. But that's not where I feel happiest. You know, I'm sure what you're referencing in the book is having been invited to like a very kind of posh Oxford drinking society when I was at uni and declining that invitation even though I was like you know I look back and I feel quite proud because I was in my first year and generally first year of uni you know everyone's trying to I guess succeed socially but I just knew that those weren't my sort of people and again in advertising and within certain elements of the creative industries it's really exhausting because you have to minimize certain elements of your personality and your character and your experience in order to fit into those spaces and I find that really emotionally and psychologically taxing. And I say that because there have been times where I have had to do that just to kind of survive, you know, to work in advertising. I kind of had to try and pretend to be a certain sort of person. But it, it got to me over time. And I, I also don't think I was very good at it. You know? <laughs> I don't think I was very happy in those years. And I think that for me is just more about the sorts of people that I want to be around and to have in my life. And the kind of, yeah, just the situations I want to be in. But I also, I don't respect those sorts of spaces and cultures. And something for me that's really important, like my editor was joking with me the other day because she said, you're completely incapable of doing anything that you don't agree with and that you don't find ethical or moral. And it's true. It's like to the point where it probably does me a disservice sometimes, but... I, I can't pretend to be someone I'm not just to get ahead. So that's why I've kind of rejected those spaces as much as possible. I still find myself in them sometimes, of course. You know, look, I, I work in publishing. I end up going to certain sorts of events, but I'm quite deliberate about staying true to myself, if that doesn't sound too trite. No, it doesn't sound trite at all, I guess. This is, in a sense, one of these kind of the, the issues that your book raised for me, which is that you could say, well, you know, it's a luxury to be able to live your life, maybe not 
in the lap of luxury and to live by your principles in the sense that probably, again, you know, your parents' generation, your grandparents' generation would have said, well, look, I've just got to earn enough money to to raise my family. And if I have to work for an organization that I don't necessarily approve of, well, that's, you know, tough. That's just the kind of reality of the world. And and young people have a higher expectation in terms of fulfillment and a job with a sense of, of purpose. But the other side of that is that it makes it even harder, I think, if you're not able to do that. And it is a commendable goal. Now, Otega, I'm going to, you've got to make allowances for me now because I am an old white bloke. And so I'm going to ask some questions which probably reflect much more on my inability to kind of fully understand some of the issues that you're talking about in the book. So please just give me a bit, you know, give me a bit of latitude to, to, to ask stupid questions. So here's, here's the first one. There's a chapter in the book, which again, I found completely intriguing, you know, which is about beauty and the amount of work that women, you know, wife, I can see that she does more than I do in this department, but nevertheless, not as much as you describe. So you talk, talk about the amount of work that you have to put in, a lot of young people have to put into, young women have to put into making themselves look as good as they can because of the expectations that are around and the kind of way in which the world, you know, always on in kind of social media. And there's a lot about Instagram. And also, you know, this gets to you. It, it really starts to undermine your well-being, the amount of time you have to spend on it, this sense of constantly being on show. And, you know, there was a moment when I just wanted to scream, you know, at you in the book. I said, just turn bloody Instagram off. You know, don't, you know, I'm not on Instagram. I am on Twitter. But there was a bit of me that said, if this social media, if this sense of being always on display is getting you down so much, can you not just walk away from it? Well, actually, when I wrote that in the book, it wasn't actually really with Instagram so much in mind. I think I was actually more thinking about real life interactions. For me, I don't find the pressure to look a certain way to really be confined to just social media. I really do mean, you know, I give the example of a speaking engagement that I take part in. That wasn't about Instagram. I think about it in terms of meetings and and events and interviews. Like it's not so much about Instagram at all. And I actually find that I'd probably present myself as slightly more unkempt on Instagram in ways that I probably wouldn't in real life because I try not to take it too seriously. But more generally, you know, it's all very well and good to say kind of that women and young women especially should disregard the pressure to conform to certain beauty standards. And I think that's an understandable suggestion. But as I detail in the book, we also stand to lose a lot if we don't. You know, women more so than men are judged based on their appearance within society and especially within professional contexts. And you could opt out of that if you want. And, you know, I, th- I think I've, I play the game slightly less than I used to a couple of years ago, but you also have a lot to lose, whether it's professional capital, social capital, or literally economic capital. You know, I cite a research paper in the book that demonstrates that poorly groomed women earn, I think it was up to 40% less than well-groomed women. And when you say that, it makes manicures and getting your roots done feel a lot less like a kind of frivolous vanity, which I do think is how women's beauty work is characterised for the most part. And it makes it feel like more of an economic imperative. You know, I am already facing a series of structural disadvantages on account of my gender and my race. So I think it's perfectly understandable that where I can claw any sort of advantage and where women can claw any sort of advantage, they try to do so. 
And I think the issue is less to do with individual women's actions, but with the with the society that places that kind of emphasis on our appearances. But we don't make the rules of the game. We're just playing along. Yeah, that's a, a, a very powerful point. Let me turn to another question that gets asked a lot. And I think people on the left and often find very kind of irritating, but nevertheless, I'm going to ask it, which is, in some ways, I'm sure you'd recognise that you have life easier than your parents, for example, that there is less overt racism in society, that you have choices way beyond the choices that your mother had, for example. But is your view that racism and sexism has declined and that we're kind of halfway there, but we need to keep on at it? Or is your view that what's happened is that racism, sexism has just moved from being kind of legitimate to now still being there, but being surreptitious, being hidden away, being more subtle. So do you think we're making progress or do you think that oppression just now works through different kind of mechanisms? Oh, I definitely think we've made progress if you look at where we were a generation ago. I mean, I obviously wasn't around a generation ago, but even if you just kind of look at accounts and historical context, I think there are genuinely fewer people who believe you know, who have racist views or sexist views than there might have been a generation ago. That's not to say that there aren't still a large number of those people, but I think, you know, standards and norms have changed and I would never, I certainly wouldn't want to go back to living in the 70s as, as a black woman. You know, I'd rather live in 2021. So that's clear evidence that progress has been made. But I think the issue is that sometimes people who don't suffer from those isms tend to overstate the extent to which they've disappeared or treated and also don't recognise that often they manifest themselves in far more subtle ways. So I might not have to worry about someone calling me the N-word when I walk down the street, you know, in the way that perhaps I might have had to worry about that 40, 50 years ago. But I also have to worry about smaller kind of microaggressions and perhaps that's a luxury to be able to focus on you know someone making I once had someone comment on my accent essentially compliment my accent and I just thought you wouldn't have complimented my accent if I was white why like why my accent isn't particularly noteworthy it's just a bog standard quite you know London quite posh accent and so maybe that's a luxury that I can worry about that when people a generation ago were worrying about being chased out, you know, because they strayed into the wrong area. But it's definitely not gone away and there's still a lot of work to be done. So, yeah, I, th- I think it's kind of a mixture. Following that up, when you write a book, you enter into a kind of implicit agreement with the reader, which is that the reader will make of it what they will. So your book is only a book, as it were, when it's read. And the process of reading the book means that the reader takes ownership of it themselves. And I guess that's one of the things that's exciting about being a writer, a popular writer in the way that you are. So let me tell you about my experience as a reader, which was that I wondered whether I was allowed to say, yes, me too. I don't mean me too, as in hashtag me too. But I was allowed to to say to you as the author, yes, I I. I know what it's like to feel excluded. I know what it's like to feel like an underachiever. I've worried about money. I I was bullied quite recently, you know, found myself in a kind of bullying and 
a relationship which made me miserable for a, a long time. I'm now I'm facing a bit of ageism, despite my incredible efforts to keep myself <laughs> young. And so, you know, I kind of I want to ask you, take it, it in some ways. This is a book that says to me, Matthew Taylor, look how different I am. I'm young. I'm black. I'm a woman. And look at the things I have to put up with. But at other points in the book, I went, oh, God, yeah, I know that feeling. When you go into an organization, there's like a, it feels like there's a clique that's running it. And, you know, you've got this awful choice, join the clique you don't like or be excluded. Is this a book where I'm allowed to go, oh, yes, I know what that feels like? Absolutely. I mean, and I find it gratifying that, you know, despite you having such a different identity to me, being older, being a different race, being male, I find it gratifying that there are elements of the book that you related to. And I would never want to gatekeep on who is or isn't allowed to relate to my experience. And actually, as I say, I find it gratifying because I wrote this from my perspective, but I felt confident, you know, the closer to my identity you are, whether it's being a woman or being the same race or being young, probably the more you relate to. But one of the key points I'm trying to make with the book is that almost everyone has a really complicated relationship with money and it might be for different reasons and you might have different financial situations but you know there's something I write in the book about feeling shame about money and whereas we understand when people feel shame about not having enough money we find it more difficult to compute when people feel shame about having too much money but that does occur and that is still shame about money and I'm always, ple- I mean, not pleased because so many of the experiences in the book aren't necessarily positive, but I am pleased when I hear from people who have really different life experiences to me saying, well, actually, yeah, I really relate to that as well. And it might be for different reasons. You know, you probably weren't facing racial, I mean, you certainly weren't facing racial discrimination in the workplace, but you might have felt like an outsider for other reasons. And you might have related to the way how small that makes you feel and how miserable that makes you feel. And that is not a bad thing. So in many ways, I'm pleased to hear that. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, it's important, isn't it? Because ultimately, as progressives, you know, we want a society that is better for everybody. And that when we talk about the fact that certain groups suffer particular disadvantages, doing that in a way that recognises that we're all human beings and that all of us suffer disappointments and difficulties and challenges is a more kind of empowering and unifying way of thinking about it than one which says simply you don't understand. you know. And I understand the grounds for that. And there are points in the book when I go, I don't know what that feels like. That must be terrible. But, but one of the reasons I loved the book was because I also was able to feel so different though we are, Otega. I was able to feel I was walking in your shoes at certain points in terms of the dilemmas. And I, I think that for me, there was something important there about how we talk about these issues and how we make people feel that we can all be part of the conversation. Let's talk a little bit about some of the politics. Um, The whole book is very political. And by the way, I just want to emphasize something you you mentioned before, which is although this book is very personal, it's autobiographical, there's loads of really interesting research and analysis in it as well. But you, one of the things that was interesting in the book is that you relate in many points to capitalism. And you say that part of what you're experiencing and part of the problem of the kind of work cultures you experience or the economic system that you experience is, is it's capitalist. 
yet you really want to own your own property, don't you, Ortega? You know, and you're quite entrepreneurial yourself. So you don't seem to me to be anti-capitalist in your instincts, even if you're <laughs> critical of capitalism as a system. That's probably accurate. You know, I don't think that capitalism is an ideal system, you know, under which to organise a society or an economic system, but it exists. And I've never been interested in being a martyr. You know, I do things, I have a really kind of strong sense of ethics and I I try and always operate in a way that I can live with and that I feel is ethical. And, you know, in... <laughs> In certain respects, that certainly does cost me money and and probably some ease in life. But I also, I'm yeah, I'm not going to be a martyr. I want to. I, I do now own my own property. I, I I want to have enough money to live comfortably and to not worry about money because I grew up worrying about money. And I think it's all very well and good to have ideals and to have principles. And I do have ideals and principles, but I also recognise the situation that I'm in. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a pragmatist above anything else. And I don't think you would argue, would you, that a non-capitalist society would be one where we wouldn't still need to address issues of elitism, exclusion, tribalism. I certainly don't think there are any societies that claim to be non-capitalist, which don't exhibit that. And indeed, some of them exhibit it very, very strongly. So, I mean, you're also dealing with the flaws of human nature. Precisely. You know, and and the propensity to exploit and to differentiate along very sort of arbitrary lines. I mean, I think capitalism, one of its key flaws is that it actually relies on inequality in order to function effectively. And so that is never going to be a particularly ethical system. There have to be winners and there have to be losers, often to really great extremes if the reason that Jeff Bezos is so rich is because some of his employees are paid so little. If they were paid fairly, he wouldn't be as rich as he is. So capitalism is kind of inherently flawed, but whilst we still live in this system, you know, it's a joke to kind of say there is no ethical consumption under capitalism. I do try and consume ethically and act ethically and have a sense of principles, but I also just want to live and have a nice time. And I, I don't feel particularly <laughs> reluctant to say that out loud. It's, it's, it's probably not radical enough for a lot of people on the left. And I, I do very much consider myself to be politically left-leaning. But also I, ha- I have to live this life and I have to walk in my own shoes. So I kind of do what's what's necessary for me to survive. Yeah, absolutely, Otega. And I think that for me, I guess, the lesson, one of the lessons I've learned in life is to hold dilemmas and not to imagine that those dilemmas can be wished away. And there are two that we've identified in our conversation. So one is, in many ways, capitalism is very dynamic in terms of its capacity to pull people out of poverty and uh, give people choices that, that didn't exist before. But you're quite right. It also has this tendency to generate inequality, which is needs to be checked. It also has a tendency to generate materialism, a sense of constantly needing more and more and more, which of course is disastrous, not just for our well-being, but also for our our planet. So I think the approach to capitalism for me is to recognize its strengths, but be aware of the fact that it carries with it these very problematic elements that we have to continuously fight against. And the problem with what is sometimes called neoliberalism is that it was a 
championing of the positive elements of capitalism and a complete refusal to acknowledge and recognize and tackle the downside. So that's kind of one dilemma or thing we have to deal with. But another is around this issue of belonging, because belonging, that part of us, which is really about our group identity, in, in some ways, it brings out the best of us. It's that sense of belonging to family, to tribe, to group that leads to our other regarding behavior. It often leads to idealism, to a kind of a sense almost of the transcendent, that we're part of the group and the group is more important than we are. And there's something very powerful about that. And indeed, what marks out the human species probably is our capacity for social cooperation. But yet that same belonging can also lead us because the reason we feel we belong is because we're different to others. And so in a way, that sense of belonging can also be what drives tribalism or racism or or bigotry. So again, another dilemma I think we have to cope with is we need to be part of groups, but to understand how being part of one group can tend to lead us to feel negative, inappropriately negative, damagingly negative to people outside that group. And I, I think, Ortega, don't you, I wonder whether you agree, that's always going to be part of human nature. That's always going to be something we have to contend with. Yes. <laughs> but I also think human beings are intelligent enough and evolved enough. You know, we are not animals in the sense that we're not wolves, we're not dogs, we're not frogs, we're not, you know, human beings, if we can get to the moon, then we have enough intellect to be able to overcome some of our, I guess, more natural instincts. And, and we all do that every day. If somebody goes on a diet, that is overcoming their natural instinct to want to eat. You know, we have the ability to rationalise and that's, you know, that's a real gift. So while I understand that we all have, you know, instinctive emotional responses and urges, I also think we are smart enough to be able to put them within the context of morality and then to act accordingly. And Otega, just finally, tell me what, I know a lot more about you than you know about me because I read your book. So <laughs> I'm, I'm invested in your life story now. What, what are you doing now, Otega, and what's next for you? Well, that is a good question. I mean, the book has just come out. I've, I'm considering whether or not to dive straight into writing another book or whether to work on a few other projects. I'm interested in, in writing for TV, so that's something that I'm exploring. But if I'm honest, I've, I've been either writing or editing or researching or promoting books back to back for the past five years. So I think I might give books a little bit of a break and, and pursue other forms of, of writing and creativity for, for the near future. I was chatting to my son the other day who's knows he's fortunate to have a job given that he came back from studying in America at the beginning of COVID. But he's decided he wants to work in a bicycle repair shop. And he started reading books by a guy called Matthew Crawford, who writes wonderfully about how we miss out on a whole part of our lives if we don't use our hands and we don't learn craft. And I envied the perspicacity he had to realize at such a young age, because I find myself at my age and think, oh, I've never, I never, I wish I was good at something involving my hands. I, wish <laughs> I had some kind of technical capacity, you know. Great to get that when you're young. So I take a keep experimenting, keep doing different things. I look forward to reading the second edition um, <laughs> of We Need to Talk About Money in 20 Years' Time and okay. finding out whether you're a progressive politician or a global entrepreneur. Who knows? But <laughs> Look, I tell you, it was great reading the book and it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. 
We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.